Uh, this morning I want to talk to you for a while because I think a lot of times in the Western world we get into this headspace where we are constantly thinking about the next thing. And we place a really high value on the next thing. You have children that are in grade school already deciding which colleges they're going to go to, what careers they're going to take. We have children who are, you know, friends with each other, and it's always asked, hey, when are they going to start dating? Then people start dating, and it's, hey, when are you going to get engaged? And you get engaged and say, hey, when's the wedding date? And then you get married and say, hey, when are you going to have kids? As a newlywed, I can testify, all that is very real and very frequent. And we have countless publications and influencers across the Internet and our culture Um, who are constantly trying to pinpoint what the next big fad is going to be, what's going to be big in our culture, in fashion, movies, music, entertainment. We're always thinking about the next thing. Where are we going to end up tomorrow on the horizon? And to a degree, this this makes good sense, and it's a logical way of thinking, because we want to have something to look forward to. We want to have a future in store. We want to know that we're going in a direction. But I think at the same time, there could be a danger to this kind of thinking. And that happens when our want for tomorrow can cause us to lose sight of where we are today. If you were uh, with us last week or if you missed out, Ryan talked about the afterlife. And in the book of 1 Thessalonians, how Paul is reassuring this church by telling them what the afterlife is going to be like. That when we move on from this world, this is how we get to enjoy eternity in the perfect presence of God. And that they ought to feel encouraged by that. And while we can be encouraged by that as our next thing, as what to expect in our future, at the same time, we can get into a dangerous headspace where we know where we're going, but we're not really sure what to do with where we are right now. And it can be tough sometimes because you come to faith and there's kind of no more milestones between here and eternity. And we're not sure what we're supposed to be up to in the meantime. See, the thing is, before we get to spend eternity in the kingdom of God in its fullness, we have the privilege of spending time here on earth, living our lives in this group of believers that God has brought together called the church. And just so you know, the church is not meant to be some kind of waiting room for heaven. This is not a brief intermission where we're just going to kind of pause and wait and look at our watches until Jesus comes again and we get to spend forever with him. God has designed his church to move in mighty ways and do mighty things here on the earth. And our place in the church ought to play a vital role in each and every one of our lives. But then that begs a question that we will be exploring today. The question is this, how does God use the church in my life? Now to answer this question, we're actually going to go back into the book of 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 5. If you don't know what 1 Thessalonians looks like, It's got the big red arrow next to it, so just find that in your Bible and you'll be there. If uh, you use the Bibles on our table, it's page 808. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible of your own here or at home, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. We would love to give you that um, to just have in your own personal possession. While you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background as far as where we are in Scripture and what's happening here. The book of 1 Thessalonians was actually a letter written by a man called the Apostle Paul. He wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament and was written to a church in the city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is a city that Paul visited on one of his many missionary journeys. And when he went to Thessalonica, he was only there for three weeks before he was run out of town, before he was forced to leave due to oppression and dissent that was being stirred up in the city. 
So his time with the Thessalonians was cut short. So he had to send his follower Timothy to go and kind of follow up and help teach and train them some. And he wrote this letter to basically fill out the instruction that he was not able to give to them in the short time that he had with them. And if you've uh, been, if this is your first time here with us, this is actually week six of this series that we've been going through. And we're actually now at the end of the book of Thessalonians here in chapter five. And here as Paul is wrapping up his message, we get a glimpse into how God uses the church in our lives. And just so you know, this book kind of moves, or this passage moves kind of at a brisk pace. So it's, it might feel like we're just sort of flying by, but we're going to stop at key points and we'll camp out in some areas to unpack what Paul has to say. So let's read together. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll actually begin in verse 12. Would you read with me? It says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And I would actually highlight this last sentence. Live in peace with each other. So Paul's for his instruction here as he's, as he's finishing out. He's giving his final words. Is for the church to acknowledge others in their community who are serving in specific roles among them. And I think the word acknowledge kind of gets lost in translation. In English, it's sort of like somebody walks into a room and I'm just kind of kind of like, it's, it's like a bare minimum sort of like, yeah, you exist. Or if somebody says something like, yeah, I, okay, I acknowledge your input, but it's sort of like a formality or just sort of patronizing people. Whereas... What Paul is saying here, as far as acknowledges, is like, hey, somebody enters a room and you stand up. It's saying you show honor to these people. The original word means to honor or to show gratitude. So Paul is giving, saying like, hey, this is more than it seems. Honor and show gratitude to who? He says to those who are working hard among you. And who he's talking about here is basically the servant leaders within their church community um, for a modern you know, analog, it's basically the pastors, the church elders, or even people in servant leadership, people like how we have numerous people who serve in our next-gen ministries, helping raise up children and students, people like the setup team who are putting this whole, you know, school into a church sanctuary week to week. He's saying, acknowledge these people who are working hard, they're making sacrifices in service of the church community saying they're caring for you in the Lord, meeting your personal and your spiritual needs. But then he says, this other, this other word that's kind of weird on the list of things to be thankful for. Saying people who admonish you. Just as a refresher, to admonish someone means to sternly warn or reprimand or rebuke somebody. And I don't know about you guys, but historically, I don't, that's not fun. I don't like being admonished. People throughout history have not enjoyed being corrected or told when they're out of line. Not a real attractive message. And so it sticks out that Paul says to be grateful and honor people who do this because it kind of goes against our nature. But we need to understand that these are new believers. This is a young church. They're young in their faith. They're not really mature as far as wisdom or how to obey God according to his word. And sometimes the immature and the unwise need some harsher instruction. Because the thing is, when you're immature, when you're unwise, you don't know that. You're not aware. They're called blind spots because we don't see what we don't know. And sometimes it can require a firm word and deliberate instruction. It might not feel good at the time, but ultimately it's saving us and helping us in our path towards growth and maturity and trust in God. It's kind of like when you have a child who's reaching for the hot stove. It's not a time for gentle suggestions. 
or to put a comment in the box for them to file away later. It's time to stop the child, move them away from the hot surface in a deliberate and quick fashion. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, look, people have been placed in your lives to speak very deliberately to your needs and to the things that you may lack. And it might be uncomfortable and it might be humbling, but you should not see it as somebody just trying to stop all your fun. It's a means of caring for you, serving you and helping you to grow in your walk with God. So don't resent it. But be grateful, highly regard these people, and he says, live in peace with each other. That's kind of his thesis statement for this whole passage, is that they would live in peace with each other. Because Paul, he, you know, he's not a fool. He knows that with this little young church that is set on all sides with opposition from the world, it could be so easy for the whole thing to come crumbling in on itself due to infighting, due to internal strife, and a lack of peace among the family members of the church. In fact, earlier in the, in the book, Paul even listed saying, that, like, I was afraid that you might have stumbled and lost faith. He was afraid that the whole thing would have collapsed and all his work for them would have been for nothing. And so he is on guard, making sure that they are on guard and that they realize if you're going to survive, you have to live in peace with each other. That meant sometimes being willing to receive hard instruction, knowing that it's an act of caring for them. It's an instruction given in love so that they can grow in godliness and grow in unity. So let's continue on, read more of Paul's instruction here. Verse 14, we'll pick it up. It says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, we've just read this. Would you go back with me and would you do a little bit of highlighting work again? Would you highlight these words for me? The word warn in verse 14, the word encourage, the word help, and the words be patient. Then when you're done with that, if you would circle these words for me. Circle idle and disruptive. Circle disheartened, circle weak, and circle everyone. So now Paul is kind of turning, diverting away from saying, talking to people who are under church leadership and is now expanding his message to the entire church community. By doing this, he's saying, hey, you all have a role to play as a part of God's church. There's no bystanders in the body of Christ, but we can all take on an active role here. So listen up. He instructs all the believers to look out for, we, for one another first by warning those who are idle and disruptive. And Paul is saying this because the reality is spiritual growth is not something that's going to happen on accident. It's not going to happen by standing still. And it's certainly not going to happen by walking backwards. Paul is saying keep an eye on one another. Be watchful. And if you see people who are beginning to stagnate, people who are beginning to take their spiritual walk very passively, very lightly... Or if there's somebody in your midst who is living in deliberate disobedience to God, you have a task and you are charged to call them out on it. To warn them of what they're doing. And to press on, pressing each other towards love and good works. In the long run, we can't control what people do. But we aren't supposed to just sort of dismiss it and watch it happen. So that we can say, told you so later. We're not supposed to live in this manner of like, oh, you do you, I'll do me. 
Now, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, take part. You have a hand in each other's lives. Take it seriously. But at the same time, Paul doesn't just leave it at warning and correction because that's not reflective of God's love. God isn't scrutinizing from on high, and we aren't called just to be these spiritual nitpickers to find imperfections in one another. Because the reality is, growth in God is not a comfortable thing. It's not a painless process, and Paul knows this. He knows that every day there are people living in the trenches of spiritual warfare. And every day there are people who are losing heart. He says they are disheartened because they feel like they're fighting a losing battle. They feel like they're just never going to make it. It's never going to work out. It's not going to be worth it. And at the same time, he's saying there are people among you who are weak. You know, we're not, we don't all come from the same place. We don't all have the same maturity or level in our faith. And so don't be surprised when there are people among you who are not able to bear the same weight as you are. They're not as far along. They're not as wise. And he's saying, hey, just get further ahead. He's saying you need to get in the trenches with them. Meet them where they are with encouragement, with comfort. Reaffirm the truth of God to them. Lock arms with them and pick them up. If you're ahead of them, it's not a competition. There's no spiritual ladder here. We are brothers and sisters, and we are called to share this burden with each other. Lift each other up when we're down and encourage the disheartened. And he says the church ought to be the place that is safest to come when people have burdens. When people have questions and doubts, this should be the first place people think to run to for comfort and truth. It should be God's people, of all people, because we have a God who's been in the trenches with us. And so we ought to do it for one another. People ought to be able to walk into a church gathering, Paul is saying, and receive encouragement from his people who are all in the same path together towards God. And in all these things, Paul tells the Thessalonians to exercise patience with who? With everyone. Now, in the Greek here, the word everyone literally means uh, everyone. Very scholarly stuff. Because Paul knows that the Christian walk can feel very, very tedious. And sometimes people can be difficult. And it's a guarantee that we're probably going to let each other down from time to time. We'll probably be let down by each other. And Paul is saying, look, there's going to be a temptation to get discouraged, to get fed up, to want to fight back to prove that you're right, or just wash your hands of the whole thing and just dismiss yourself from all, all of these people and their mess. But Paul's saying, hey, don't try to be right. Try to do right. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. Strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Strive to live in peace like he said before. And he says everyone else, because when we do this, when we choose not to walk away or not to fight back and try and get even, we're not only reconciling a relationship within the church, we're not only promoting peace, we're actually proclaiming the gospel with our actions. That's why he says everyone else, because the world is looking to the church and at the church. And Jesus is the ultimate example of non-retaliation. Jesus is the ultimate example of somebody who had every right and every reason to fight back or say, all right, that's enough. Good luck, you guys. I'm, bye. You know, your mess is your mess. I've tried my best. But Jesus didn't. He stuck in there. He died on the cross so that we could know what it was like to live a life at peace with God. 
And so he's saying when believers model that kind of behavior, they are giving the world a glimpse of God. They're giving the world a glimpse of what the gospel looks like in action, putting Jesus on display for the church and the world to see. Now next, Paul's about to pick up the pace again. He's going to fire off this series of, it's almost like a stream of consciousness, like he's running out of paper and he's trying to fit everything else that's coming to mind. So we're going to dash through these and then we will examine them further once we read. So verse 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with these first three verses here, the first three instructions he gives. He says, rejoice always. Highlight always for me, if you would. Pray continually. Highlight continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Highlight in all circumstances. And I'm having you highlight these. We're going to camp out here first because I think the Thessalonians and modern Christians and me personally all read these three instructions with a certain dosage of discomfort. You can kind of squirm and feel uncomfortable reading this as an instruction, as something we're called to do, because a lot of times it's not something we feel like doing. You say, I don't feel joyful, I don't feel thankful, I don't feel like praying today, and I can't pray nonstop. I'm supposed to just never say amen, that's impossible, so why bother? It feels like a very, very defeating series of instructions. How can I live up to this? We almost treat it like a joke sometimes. We need to understand what Paul is saying, though, is that the call to rejoice always is not an order to only feel positive feelings. It's not a command to hide the way that you're hurting, because God knows more than anyone that this life is filled with both the bitter and the sweet. We live a mixed bag of a life, and God is totally aware of that. And God cares for his children. He is with his children at their highest points. And at their lowest points, even when those things seem to weirdly intersect. I'll give you a, a, a glimpse of what I'm talking about here. Um, many of you know, uh, four months ago, I, I got married. And it's awesome, and it's wonderful, and I loved it. And um, our wedding day is, is the day of celebration, you know? People say it's supposed to be the happiest day of your life. Fewer people probably know, though, that uh, a week before my wedding day, we buried the woman who would have been my grandmother. My wife's grandmother passed away, and we had her funeral, and then the following weekend, we had my wedding. And I'll tell you guys, it's hard to feel just one kind of emotion in a situation like that. This day that's supposed to be sweet and celebratory, and you're so glad to see everybody who's here to share in your gladness. And your mind can't escape this one person who you wish was still around to be there. It's hard, guys. Life is hard, and God knows that. And so we're praying on, on our wedding day, and even as we're praying for our marriage, and we're praying for everybody who's here and giving thanks for the reason that we get to celebrate this day at the same time, we're praying grieving over something that we have lost, someone that we have lost. And that's a reality of life. And that is not undoing the goodness of God in grieving in that because the call to rejoice is cheapened if we treat it like it's an obligation. Rejoicing God is cheap 
when it's feigned positivity, when it's playing pretend like there's no reason to grieve on this earth. Last week, Ryan taught us that we're not called to grieve like people who have no hope. We, are, we have the opportunity to grieve like people who do have hope. That I know where my grandma is now, but I know that she's not here, and that hurts. But I have hope that gives life in my soul because I know that God is good in the midst of the bad, in the midst of the grief. That's why we rejoice. It's not because we're pretending to be happy. It's because it's a call to remember God in the midst of sadness and know and take heart that he is still good and he's still comforting. He aches when his children ache. And he is showing us love no matter what's going on in this world. And the call to give thanks isn't a call to be in denial of our circumstances. It's not a call to only have good circumstances. That's impossible. It's a call to affirm that God works all things together for good, is what Paul says in Romans. All things, even the bad things, God is working together for good. What the world intends for good, God, for evil, God can work towards good to put himself on display and give life to his people. And so the call to give thanks is a call to celebrate that we know that's true. And we know that goodness is with us right now and will be with us right around the corner. And the call to continual prayer isn't having to live this kind of prayer marathon, this prayerathon, if you will, where we just never say amen. And we're just having to never talk to anybody else because we're busy talking to God. The word continually here is actually like as if I had a cough or the hiccups. It's something that's going to spring up in me every now and again, spontaneously and frequently. It's almost like how often we check our phones during the day. I don't even get a text message, or I think I just got a text message, yeah. And I have to get notifications to pull my phone out. All it takes is a spare minute, and just my hand starts passively going in there like instinct. He's saying prayer should be an instinct. It should be something that we don't wait until mealtime and Sunday morning to do. It's an everyday purposeful interaction with God. It is running to Him first, no matter what happens in our life. Paul is saying that the Thessalonians ought to remain conscious of God's presence among them and their desperate dependence on Him and make Him the first one that they run to every day and all day. He's saying, you have a God in heaven who cares for you. Don't miss out on the blessing of that care. Don't miss out on God. And then Paul tells them not to quench the spirit. Kind of a weird phrase. We'll unpack it a bit. The language there is actually the image of like pouring water over a fire, like dousing a fire. And what Paul's trying to communicate to the Thessalonians is saying, hey, the spirit of God is among you and within you. He is working in your lives to grow you in your faith. But through a lack of trust or a lack of surrender, you stand at risk of hindering that work or diminishing its effect in your life. And he's saying the way that they quench the spirit is by treating prophecies with contempt. Now, full stop here. The word prophecy does not mean fortune-telling. It doesn't mean trying to predict the future. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not a superstitious thing. Paul is saying the word prophecy here in the New Testament is reference to whenever the word of God is being verbally declared. When the word of God is being spoken over someone. 
And he's saying the Thessalonians that they're at risk of hindering the work of God in their lives by being dismissive and contemptible towards the word of God, by treating it just like it's the word of men, like the instruction that I'm being given is just somebody's opinion rather than the instruction of Almighty God. And so Paul is saying, hey, don't, don't take everything as gospel. Some things you're going to hear are untrue, but test everything you hear. Test it and cling to what is good. Well, how do you test prophecies? How do you test if something is the word of God? By knowing God. Jesus said, my sheep recognize my voice. He's saying we should be able to recognize the voice of God by being invested in our relationship with him. By running to him, by knowing what his heart is like, knowing his priorities. So that when we hear a word, we can confirm whether or not that's in line with what our God would say. And so by growing in our knowledge of God, we can test prophecies. And by choosing God in his heart and his ways, we can cling to good and we can reject evil and everything that is false. Now, before, before we move on, that's a lot. Let's just kind of take a deep breath. You made it this far. It's daylight saving. I know we're all fatigued. But don't worry. Paul's about to wrap up. And he wraps up in this beautiful, beautiful way, starting with... Um, a prayer, a prayer for the Thessalonians. So let's wrap up together in verse 23. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would highlight all of verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. We don't have to read that literally. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now as we see, starting verse 23, that we've come full circle. Where at the beginning, Paul is instructing them to live in peace with each other. Now he is praying to the God of peace. Saying that he is going to do the work in sanctifying them. And growing them in their their relationship and knowledge of God and making them more like him. And he promises in verse 24 that this God is faithful and he's going to finish the work that he started in him. He's encouraging the Thessalonians saying, don't you worry, the burden is not on your shoulders. That this baby church, immature, unsure, and troubled on all sides, has almighty God, the God of peace, who is going to faithfully see them through. He's going to grow them and call them to himself in steadfast love. The burden isn't on their shoulders to accomplish every, la- every piece of this laundry list that Paul has given them, but just to trust that this God is going to do what he says he's going to do, and he is who he has always been. And then Paul wraps up with a few instructions to share the message with the church community, greet each other with a holy kiss. Again, it's fine for the first century but a handshake is fine in 2019. I do not take this literally. I love you guys, but we won't. (laughs) And the most remarkable instruction of all here, and I think we can miss it, is verse 25. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Would you actually highlight that? Because that is significant. Because just as a reminder, the person writing this is the Apostle Paul like the one from the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul. 
And I think we can get into this mindset that there are just some super Christians in the Bible or super Christians in the church today, that they're just, you know, they're standing on high, they're immune to this world, they've got it all together, I'm the one that needs help, I wish I was more like them. What Paul is saying here, he's conveying and asking that they pray for him, is saying that all these instructions, all these descriptions apply to him as well. Even though he is spiritually their elder, he still needs the support of the church family. He hasn't outgrown his need for people to encourage him and help him and pray for him. And even though they're a young church, that doesn't disqualify them from serving someone else, from serving someone who may appear to be further along than they are. They can still be an encourager and a support to the Apostle Paul in the way that they seek God together. So now let's, let's bring this all into the magical year of 2019. We began this morning with this question, how does God use the church in my life? And based on what we've read, and based on the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians, our answer is this. God uses the church to grow us closer to himself and to each other. You see, the church is this beautiful, God-given, handcrafted, messy, imperfect thing. It's this wonderful family that God has put together, that he loves, that he died for. And he delights in the work that he is doing to bless it and to grow it and to draw his people nearer to himself. And now, as parts of the church, we have been given an opportunity to join God in that same work. That's why we here at Real Hope live by this mission statement, is that we exist to join Jesus in his mission to transform lives. Jesus is transforming lives, drawing people in with his love, and we get the privilege of taking part in that. We have a role to play. Not just me, not just pastors or people on stage, not just people who have been in the faith for decades and are qualified or educated or whatever. Everyone has a part to play. God has designed each of us with the capacity to serve this church. That's why we also live by this family value is that as Real Community Church, we share leadership. It's not about one personality here, or it's not about one team of people feeding everybody else. This isn't a waiting room, and there are no bystanders in God's family. It is an active process that we all get to take part in, serving and being served, just like Jesus came to serve us. We've been called to seek God together, to share a glimpse of God with anyone we get to encounter and anyone we get to invest in. And the church ought to be known today, inside and out, as a place to share our questions and our burdens with each other and know that you are heard, know that you are cared for, and that it is a priority to us that we see you grow in your faith, that you get a glimpse of how amazing our God is and you desire more of him throughout your entire life. This series is called Life in the Light. And that's, that's what life in the light really is. You know, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill, and it's not to be hidden away. It's not to be hidden under a bushel basket. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to shine out so that people can see the light of Jesus through his people. And we ought to remember that we have a caring God who's looking after us, even when it gets hard, 
And he loves us perfectly so that we together can run to him and rejoice in his goodness and give thanks in the work that he is doing and that he will faithfully see through. And it can be tough and it can be messy at times, but we can take heart in knowing that we are not alone in this. That we can trust one another. We have this beautiful family of faith growing together. We are meant to live in peace, lifting one another up, even when we fall short. And moreover than that, we have the God of peace, who faithfully looks after us, who stirs up peace within us, just as he did through Jesus on the cross, so that we can grow together, we can exercise patience, we can strive for good, and we can see the Holy Spirit transform lives around us and transform our lives as well. So our task isn't meant to be flawless in our walk. Our task isn't to do everything that Paul has said, you know, perfectly. But instead to trust in the God who will keep us blameless, who will keep us bound together in love, and grow us together in faith. No matter where we are in our walk, God has called us to himself. No matter where you think you may stand, God has a role and a purpose for you. God has placed people in your path designed to help grow you and encourage you where you need it. And he has placed you in other people's paths to grow and encourage them and serve them so that he can be put on display through your life. And you can get a fuller glimpse of who he is. So we can share and receive and reciprocate the love of an incredible, all-loving God, all-good God, and grow in the grace and peace that he gives. And I recognize today that there's probably people who have, who, who have come into this place who have had poor past experiences with the church. Maybe you've been burned, maybe you've been hurt by people, or they've communicated in a way that was, didn't feel loving, didn't feel godly. And first of all, I, I'm, I'm sorry that happens. We're going we're gonna to fall short. We still wrestle with sin. I also want to say I am so grateful that you're here. I'm so thankful that God brought you here, and I believe that he brought you here, not so you could hear me talk, but so that hopefully you can hear him speak to your heart. So you can see through his word what the church is meant to be, and we can see that we have a role in making it, making it more beautiful as God enables us. And it's my prayer that we would all come together and that we would all share in responsibility and love for each other, despite imperfections, God has loved us when we were imperfect and that we would draw near together and love one another so that we could see God more and more in our lives and the lives of those around us. And if you've come into this place and you're not really sure where you stand with God right now, you don't feel like you're a, a part of the church body, you're not sure whether or not you believe this God that Paul writes about or that we, we talk about and sing about here this morning, that's okay. As said, this is a place that is safe to come with your questions safe to come with your doubts, and I will be in this room, Ryan and Jenny, we will all be here in this building, and we want to hear them. We want to hear you. We want you to know that you are heard and you are cared for, not only by us, but by this wonderful and incredible God who would love to see you as part of his family, who would love to see your life transformed and give you a fuller glimpse of what it is to be loved and to be looked after by a God who has created you who has sustained you and has given his life so that you can live forever at peace with your family and at peace with him.